I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests who are writers and scholars about their reading and writing practices. Some of my research interests are on the topic of interpretation and how interpretation is reproduced through the practice of citation. Some of the questions I hope we continue to think about are whose interpretation matters, what are the tensions between the author, text, and reader? My guest today is Kalisa Ray, an award-winning poet and journalist in Durham, North Carolina. She's the author of the debut poetry collection, Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat. Some of her essays and articles have been published in Autostraddle, Lit Hub, Bitch Media, Catapult. And her poetry appears in Frontier Poetry, Florida Review, Russ and Moth, Pink, and others. Currently, she serves as assistant editor for Glass Poetry and is the co-founder of Thinkin' Inc. and the Women of Color Speak reading series. I'd like to begin with the title of your collection, which I think frames your placemaking geography and focus on narrativizing your traumas. In your podcast discussion with Nakisha Elise Williams of Black and Publish, you talked about your autoimmune disease and how your trauma had impacted your physical and emotional health. In the poem itself, Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat, you're critiquing the South, the American flag, the American dream, and patriarchy. And you had such evocative lines, such as, in quotes, the continent they forced to the back of your throat. And that's what they will come for first, the throat. Why did you choose to title your entire collection with that particular poem? Was there a callback to the last line of Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat in your acknowledgement? Because there at the end, you write, um, to the ghost still haunting, I release you. Yeah, so I'll answer those kind of separately because there's some really poignant questions. So the first thing is, uh, the answer to why I named it Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat is actually a really cool story. That's really important to me. So I had this amazing opportunity to win a residency spot at the Poets House in New York. And so I actually studied under the amazing award-winning poet, Safia Ahilio, who actually became the editor of my collection. And what happened was she said, today in class, we're going to go to the library and we're going to find... Uh, a book or something, an object. And I want you to grab seven words from that object. Well, serendipitously and amazingly, my seven words were woman, throat, ghost, spirit, and the poem came to me. So I had already had my collection written in my master's program with Claudia and Ada at Queens University. And I went to the poet's house after the book was already written, but I didn't have a title for my collection. And it wasn't until, you know, the destiny and the fate of me taking this class and her asking us to pick random words from this book, did I find the title for my collection. And I I took a class once that they said, sometimes poems speak to you and sometimes they speak through you. And literally the poem just spoke through me. Like I was just a vessel and the words just came out for that poem. And I think it's because I had, you know, 11 years stored up of me living or more, maybe 13 years of me living in the South and me being traumatized. And I think all that trauma just like purged on the page when I wrote the poem, you know, about calling back to my ancestors and about the history of racism and violence in the South and in America. And for me, 
what I tried to do throughout the book was show the many types of ghosts that you can be haunted by, which is why to answer your last question and the acknowledgements, I say to all the ghosts, because there's, there's so many different types of things that haunt us and traumatize us and keep us up at night and make us worried or anxious. And so at the end, I'm just saying, I release you because I deal with so much anxiety and depression and like a body stuff every single day that that was me saying, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired of being plagued by these things every day. I really, I really see you. You can, you can go. You're not welcome here. And like I had told you earlier, before we had started recording, um, you're the first poet on the podcast because I, I read poetry, but I never know how to frame my questions and, and um, talk about the genre of poetry. So can you tell me why you, why you chose this as your form? Oh, that's a really good question. So that's just the natural form that I go to first. It's funny because that's not where I got my start. So if you listen to my um, interview with Nakisha, I actually got my start in fiction and a lot of people don't know that about me. And now mm -hmm. that I'm writing a fiction novel, everybody's like, oh, Khalees is writing a fiction novel. But I actually started as a six-year-old, as you can tell from my, my interview with her. Mm -hmm. When I was a little girl, I used to write stories as a way to escape from trauma and growing up in a place that was the murder capital of the world. So the way that I healed and my trauma was expressed through fiction stories. So I became an adult though, I had another very like fate-like thing happen. So when I was in Wilmington, the town that I talk about in my collection, I um, started writing poems when I got there because I uh, learned about, you know, Maya Angelou and Nikki Giovanni. And my mom was like, yeah, you could do that. And so I started writing poems when I first got to college, but it wasn't until I experienced really horrific racism at UNC Wilmington. And I transferred out of that university to an all black HBCU. And I met the director of the department was a blind, like world renowned poet. And she told me you should do poetry for the rest of your life. And that is when something clicked in my head where I was like, oh, so that's the genre that's going to become my main genre. My natural inclination was always to express myself through a poem. And I do think poetry has a unique way of shedding light on big topics, which is why I think slam, because that's how I got my, my start I, in slam. I remember poetry. in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think just to answer your question, it just is natural for me. When mm -hmm. I started writing this book, I was in my MFA program, so I feel like that's important to note too, that that was the genre that I came to my master's program studying. And so I think that now when I think about writing, I immediately think either in a in an article or in a poem because those are mm -hmm. the two lanes that my brain is always navigating. But you know what's funny? I think Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat I tell people that it's a mixture of prose and poetry. Mm -hmm. I think some of my poems are stories. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's a popular genre right now. A lot of people are doing that a lot more. My mentor, Mahogany Brown, recently had her collection, Chlorine Sky, that's a novel in verse, which is basically just poems that are stories, mm -hmm. you know, so that's what I tried to do with Ghost on the Black Girl's Throat. I tried to make it so that it doesn't really feel like a poem, right. you know? Mm -hmm. So um, when I listened to your episode on Black and Publish, I had already read your collection. And then 
um, at the end, when you started reading your poems, it was just so lyrical that I had to reread it in your voice. It just really changed the experience for me. I just thought it was lovely. And I think um, before you read your poems, you had told the host that um, you had started out in slam poetry, but you didn't really feel like it was for you. But the way you read your poem, it was a lovely experience to listen because it was your voice and you had so much emotion and, and it was just really wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know if you remember when I told her, you know, my my mom from a very young age, she could tell that I was going to be a, a performer, a natural mm-hmm. performer. And it makes me emotional thinking about it now because I because I am now the full-time artist and I feel very lost at the current moment. I don't quite know like what's next for me. I'm writing this novel and I'm like interviewing mm-hmm. for positions and and I'm an artist and I don't know what that means. But it's funny because I always keep coming back to the fact that my mom saw something in me. When I was six, mm-hmm. she used to sit me on the bed and teach me Disney songs. And so that's what you hear when you hear me perform. I've been performing since I was six. Like my mom used to teach me how to sing and perform scenes from Disney movies. And then she put me in like acting classes. And so I've been acting since I was like seven, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you hear me do slam poetry, that's just been a part of my like yeah. natural behavior and the way I am. I've always been very, you know, theatrical yeah. and dramatic. I really love your voice, even yeah. as we're speaking out and as you're reading, because I don't like my reading voice, like I told you. It's just your voice really resonated as I reread again. It was just, it was a really nice experience. Um, so I was really curious how you chose to name the three parts of your collection. So there's fire, wind and water, and then the last section is earth and spirit. For you, what do these themes represent and how did you choose the ordering of the poems within the sections? So the answer to that is like two different things. The reason why I chose to split them into sections was because (laughs) I actually got together with my husband, who was also a poet, a slam Mm -hmm. poet, and he's a, he's way more talented than I am. So I was like, Hey babe, you know, uh, we're going to, we need to lock ourselves in the house for a couple of weekends and we're going to order this, this book. And strangely enough, when I was reading the collection, I felt a calling, you know, like a calling from the ancestors to tell me to like connect back to this tradition, this oral tradition of storytelling, of poetry, of the griot. And so I was like, hey, I should, since I'm talking about spirit and I'm also talking about the rebuilding or almost like the phoenix, like rising from the ashes out of trauma, you know, and rebuilding yourself. But I'm also talking about calling upon the ancestors and I'm talking about nature. It just was like, it came to me one day that that's how my poems needed to be sectioned off. Mm-hmm. I needed to show the progression of the trauma through the elements, mm-hmm. the natural elements of the earth um, and the natural elements of the body. Because I believe that we are, you know, as human beings, we are built of, of those elements as well. And so when I got together with my husband, he's so creative. He said, I can see the progression with your poems. There's an evolution that's happening. And so my husband really helped me see how each couple of poems needed to be grouped into these sections to show an evolution. Because I think far too often people think that, you know, like racism is like one note, you know, like happens and you just like react to it. But 
there's a whole bodily experience that happens when you are the victim of racism and trauma and bigotry. So that's what we wanted to show the progression um, and how it's all connected the, the wind, the fire, the spirit, the body, the mind, all of it is connected. So that's how we got to the science of it. But it's funny. I saw a picture on Instagram of one of the poets that I love, Courtney Lamar. Um, he was organizing his book with pieces of his book pages printed out. I had never seen anybody do that before. And so that's kind of why I decided to, to organize my book that way. I printed my book out and it just like fell into place. I'm very interested in your analysis and placemaking of space and geography. And I feel like this poetry collection and after reading your essay for Lit Hub, which you titled On the Places and Poetic Forms of the Black Southern Poet, you write about the apparent ties of the poetics of language and known writers like Toni Morrison, Nikki Giovanni, Zora Neale Hurston, Maya Angelou, and others. Why is it that you chose to reflect and interrogate the South specifically? Why is it so significant to you and your body of work? I think that I was trying to say something very specific about the South in this collection. When I first came to the South, I noticed a dramatic difference in the way that families and people and um, individuals that were born here operate that are very different from the way that I was raised. And, mm -hmm. and so I watch people, you know, I watch how people navigate and talk to each other and in their interpersonal relationships and the, the stark difference of the way people navigated back in the Midwest and in the North versus when I came to the South. And so what I really tried to do with the collection was to really interrogate the nuances of how people think, because I think that also was me healing. That was a part of my healing. You know, as a person who was the the victim and the survivor of a lot of different levels of, of trauma and abuse, I think that I, as a way to process, you know, and as a way to heal from that trauma, I had to interrogate like why, the why behind, mm -hmm. why do we do what we do? You know, why do we silence Black voices so often? Why do we attack and mistreat women the way we do, you know, all of the different things that I couldn't contend with that I didn't quite understand. Mm -hmm. I had to break them apart for me to fully understand it. That's why I think the self for me was important to investigate more. And that's why you'll find that I said earlier that I, I feel like I'm in the tradition of other writers like Tony and Zora, because mm -hmm. I think that they do that too so well, whether it's through poetry, whether you're talking about them doing it through fiction, um, I think that that's what makes Tony's work so beautiful is she is so good at interrogating the person and painting the person on a multifaceted level. Nobody is monochromatic. And so I think that for me is what I try to do with my work to not show anybody um, on one note, but show that we are all so complex and multifaceted. And sometimes the reason why we do what we do, there's no rhyme or reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think doing that helps me heal even mm -hmm. greater. So yeah, I hope that that answers your question. Of course. And I think it's a good um, introduction to the next question about language and reclaiming language, which often comes up in your poetry, especially in body apology. Outside the canon, words never use, buzzwords in band books, and epilogue for Ben books. 
So to return to the themes of ghosts and ancestral spirits, what's the connection to them with the meta critique of language and text? So I think, you know, there's a huge connection because <laughs> those poems were birthed out of the fact that I, I met Alice Walker. Um, and I saw her talk and she said the whole talk was about banned books that aren't allowed to be taught around the world. But specifically, she was talking about banned books that are, aren't allowed to be taught in the southern, like southeastern yeah. region. And so she came to speak in the, the town that my book is about in Wilmington. And I was so impacted by hearing her say that literally this is not new. This is something that's been going on since if you believe in, you know, the beginning of time and the cradle of civilization back in, you know, Africa, they use it as a technique, you know, to silence people that were enslaved. They stripped them from knowledge. They stripped information. They told you not to say certain words and certain phrases. And then it was used in, you know, chattel slavery as well. And so I'm in the legacy of my ancestors. That was a technique used to silence us and keep us from knowledge. And so I think that when I heard her speak about that, that's something that I knew, but she reminded me, you know, that we have to rebel against that at mm -hmm. all times. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was trying to do with my collection was to follow in her footsteps of reclaiming knowledge and reclaiming words that were silenced. But also that was actually a metaphor for the larger collection for me too, this idea behind throughout my life as a young black woman that was like grew up in a very conservative household. Um, I, but was also a survivor of abuse as a kid on multiple levels there was a lot of hush, hush, don't talk about that. And that's a thing that happens that is synonymous with, um, you know, behavior in the black community. And I write a lot about that, how in the black community, we say like, no, 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 what happens in the house stays in the house. Okay. And so that was a technique I wanted to use in the book as to say, no, this is my book and you're not going to tell me to be quiet. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to use words that people don't want me to use. I'm going to speak up about things people told me not to talk about. And I'm going to pay homage to the greats that have come before me um, that have done this same thing, this reclamation of not only the body, but of language, you know, around the body and how liberating and free and healing that can be. And I see that um, when I read your catapult piece. So can we talk a little bit about that? It was such a nice placemaking, too, because you had referenced a lot of... Um, early 90s music like it was TLC you had you had red light special you had some of the lyrics and then you kind of talking about just um your upbringing you were, did you go to a private school was it yeah yeah you were talking about this kind of reclaiming your body and and your space and that you wanted to have this op this this bigger discussion on how do we talk about blackness and trauma and when you wrote that did you want to make it kind of like a musicality note to it or? Yeah, that was my original pitch. That's actually what really drew Catapult to me, they said. So mm -hmm. I pitched them that idea from the start. Ariel uh, Vitson was an amazing editor to work with, but she said what drew her to my pitch was the fact that I said from the get go that I wanted to do this really unique comparison between my conservative upbringing and how I found sexual liberation. But also I wanted to tie that with how I was impacted by Jasmine Sullivan's album, album. Um, <laughs> Hotels. Yeah. And so, and it was so big for me to talk about hotels because as you know, if you read the article, 
I didn't start listening to secular music until I was like late in my teens, you know? So like I was very sheltered when it came to like anything worldly. And I was the only kid that was like that out of my siblings. They kept me very protected, you know? And so for me to talk about this very explicit album (laughs) was huge. (laughs) And to compare that to my upbringing was just so freeing and very liberating. So we've talked about reclaiming the body and reclaiming language and how they go together. Now I want to go back to the references in your poems because you added a lot of context to them. In Exit Speech, you dedicated the poem to those who criticized Michelle Obama for being named a spokesperson for Subway. Um, in Mad Blackbird, it's a callback to Maya Angelou's Cage Bird. American Maid looks at the time when Raven Simone made a distinction between African American and American. And and you had already talked about this earlier. The epilogue for Ben Books is about you attending Alice Walker's talk. And in the very last poem of your collection, even after the death settles, you included a short passage from Where the Wild Things Are. So my question to you is, why did you choose these particular people, the text, um, to write or respond to? What's the dialogic relationship that you're exploring or examining across texts, people, and discourses? I've got a couple of answers for that. The first part of that would be my letters to people were a way for me to understand myself and understand the world around me in a greater sense. I actually found that in my MFA program, when this book was being crafted, I wrote a lot of letters to people because I think that I was so mad and frustrated with everything that was going on in the world as like a young 20 something, you know, like I said, coming to a place of violence and abuse and and not knowing how to contend with those things. I think I was very angry. I was like, I have a lot of things to say to a lot of people. (laughs) And I think that that's how these letters were a way for me to be in conversation with people that don't know me. Um, And so I wanted to be in conversation with Alice and tell her how much she affected me. You know, I wanted to have a sister girl conversation with Raven Simone and kind of pop her across the shoulder and say, girl, stop that. Like, what are you talking about? No, I wanted to kind of shake the people that were mad at uh, Michelle Obama because I was so uh, infuriated by reading the comments on her, her video for Subway. There were horrific things said about her. I mean, so, I think my letters were a way of of healing and and purging all of those feelings of anger and frustration and and confusion. But also, you know, they don't know me. And I think that I wanted to feel more connected to them in a way. I wanted to have a dialogue with them in hopes that I could reach some greater level of understanding um, (laughs) by talking to them. But it's interesting that you bring in um, where the wild things are, because I think that when a when a poet or a writer is in conversation with another text, there's a different kind of conversation that happens. I think when I first read Where the Wild Things Are and saw the book, I saw myself. I, it's it's strange, but I saw um, that's how I was as as a kid too. That I also grappled with the idea of being afraid of monsters, but also understanding them as well. And so I I had like a Yeah, that was a different kind of dialogue that I was having at the end of the book. But as you said, I think I wanted to leave people on the note of 
this final conversation is almost like a, a, a sigh of relief. I wanted that like, final poem to be like, okay, I'm talking mm-hmm. to these monsters and like, uh-huh. okay, you know? Yeah. yeah. I like that because it was hard for me to read where the wild things are because I just, I wasn't a very good reader at the time because I was trying to learn English. But I, I like that you ended it, that reference with that poem because it's about imagining real and fake monsters and then the possibilities of what what these monsters could bring whether they're good or bad because i don't where the monsters and where the wild things are bad maybe they were little boys, <laughs> and that's what i think is so cool is mm-hmm. the little boys call them as friends mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah so this question i think about um about what disha had said in my conversation with her I asked her what was her reaction to being a black writer since the social movements of summer 2020. And her book was also released during that time. And um, your collection was released quite recently as well. Um, Her response, she mentioned that she's happy her story collection has been received enthusiastically by many audiences and readers, and that there's a way to appreciate and universalize black stories and storytellers without erasing their blackness. And I feel like your poem, Circus Acts, No More Black Girl Magic, speaks to this kind of careful and ethical reading practice. In that poem, you write, when people say there's black girl magic, say, I have no magic, I make meals from crumbs, cast demons with just my tongue, envision possibility from potential. So by declaring that you don't want to be labeled as black girl magic, are you making us aware of the constant com- conflation of it with spirituality and ancestral knowledge? Why do you create this kind of imagery of magic as a form of a circus act? And what has been the responses to your poetry collection from non-Black readers? So I'll answer the first part of that question. I get a lot of questions about no more Black girl magic. And that one's mm-hmm. really important to me because, no, I'm not saying... Um, anything about um, our connection as Black folks or folks that originated in Africa and our connection to magic. Actually, just the opposite. I'm saying that what America has done is they have exploited our labor um, to the point of we are tired. We're tired of being the saviors all the time. And so that's really what Circus X is about is we are always walking on a tightrope of never being good enough and always overachieving and burning out and working ourselves to a grave. And then America keeps saying that black women are going to be the saviors. And so for me, I I couldn't contend with that. I didn't understand that. And I actually um, wrote an article with a friend all about that, about how we are almost like the, the superhero figure of America, but also the least protected and the most interrogated and attacked. And so I just didn't understand how that could be. um, I don't know how that that could be the expectation for Black women. And so really, that poem is about relinquishing the expectation on us to be these perfect savior beings. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's really why I don't like the phrase Black Girl Magic, because I think that it perpetuates the idea behind that we are these superhero um, mythical creatures. It mm-hmm. doesn't have flawed capability. Right. Um, that's really what the poem is about. And I think that I've been super blessed that non-Black readers and people of, of all races and ethnicities have loved the collection. And I've just been uh, humbled 
at the fact that people get that, especially because I've been fortunate to be on a tour where I get to talk about some of these subjects and kind of explain them further. Mm-hmm. People have had such an amazing um, connection. It's interesting that a lot of non-Black folks have said that they felt very connected to my poems mm-hmm. and they saw themselves in the work. Although, you know, you know, they, they're not descendants of, of African people, they could definitely feel that strain or connect to some of those feelings of frustration and anger on some level. And so, yeah, have been a great vehicle for connecting with people that don't have the same lived experiences that I do. And your poems drive a really big conversation still to this day. And have you been doing the tour on Zoom? Is that how you've been? Yeah, so a couple of my my events have been in person, just the small little um, North Carolina Mm -hmm. events have been in person. But yeah, I've done like 30, 30 different plus um, Zoom at the beginning of April. And then since then have done like 20 more. And then now it's June and I have gobs more. So I've done <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah, I've done mostly Zoom. How has that been? Is that, do you think, do you think it's more open or like the Zoom rather than being in a bookshop or a You know, what's interesting, that's a great segue out of what we were just talking about, because I speak and perform a lot, of course, mm-hmm. before the pandemic happened. And for some reason, I feel like the Zoom events have made me be able to be in conversation and be open and honest with people that I wouldn't normally mm-hmm. have that conversation with in public. You know, like sometimes mm-hmm. it's a little, um, it can, when you talk about race and you talk about sexism and trauma and bigotry, these big topics or social justice, sometimes in person, that can be a bit strained or fraught or awkward. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, when via Zoom, you have that barrier, you know, mm-hmm. like you free to just like talk about whatever. Zoom has allowed me to to just be very candid about these subjects and very open. You know? That's really interesting because I know a lot of people had to, um, at least based on my conversations with other authors, they've um, had to really adapt to this kind of Zoom promotional tour. And I think at the time when I was interviewing them, it it was a bit strange, but maybe it's become kind of like every day now. I think people are just like getting accustomed and acclimated. Yeah, yeah finally, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask about uh, your second poetry collection, Unlearning Eden, and then a little bit about your your, is it your novel, your fiction novel? Yeah, so what can we expect? Is is your poetry collection uh, a follow-up to this collection? I'll actually start with Unlearning Eden. It's not a follow-up to this book at all. It's actually uh, going in a very different direction in a way. So it's a YA novel in verse that is along the same things as we were talking about with the Catapult essay. So if you just take you know, a lot of the writing that I've been doing lately about my history of sexual repression and me as a young, like queer black girl feeling awkward in my own body and like not knowing what to do. Um, That's really what Unlearning Eden is about. It's about breaking the shackles and the chains of like sexual church culture, repression and shame culture, and really finding the liberation in my body and my voice and my personality and really like leaning into who I am. And so that's going to be a YA 
mm-hmm. novels like poetry and prose. I'm really loving the poems that are coming out from that because they're very raunchy and bold and just like candid and unfiltered. That that collection kind of takes a totally different um, tone, if you will. So the funny story is the press that wanted my book, they wanted Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat. And so I had to quickly come up with um, something new and fresh to pitch to them. And so I extracted poems that were about queerness and sex and the body out of Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat. And I crafted a whole new collection based on my poems about identity and sex and desire in the body. So I took those out and then... I got together with an illustrator. So it's actually a um, illustrated book as well. And then my novel, oh my goodness. I'm super excited about my novel. It is a romance novel, a black um, love story. And I think you could classify it as women's fiction because it's not like a steamy, lusty romance novel. It's really a, a story about a black guy who's a widower who's raising two kids by himself and this beautiful black woman moves in next door and uh, they form a best friendship and then they fall in love. It's based in the South, it's based in Virginia. And there's a lot of like historical context because she buys this, you know, older black woman's home. She inherits this house. And so, yeah, uh, it's gonna be great. I'm really excited. What, you, you decided to classify it as women's fiction? It hasn't been published yet. So I've okay. been okay. telling myself that I'm working with my coach, Sarah Smith, that's like best selling author of, um, I don't know if you know, Simmer Down and Faker. And forget what her third book is. But Sarah Smith has been my writing coach. And she just really pushed me to think outside of the romance genre because mm-hmm. there are elements of my book that talk less about romance and more about, you know, friendship and family and history. So I don't know who knows what it'll be classified as when it gets. Okay. Yeah. I'm always interested in this kind of genre, how, Mm -hmm. how one decides a genre. So that's why I was asking. It sounds like very interesting projects and I can't wait to read about them. So So, Kalisa, thank you so much for your time. And I hope we stay in touch and that I can have you back on when your other two projects are released. Likewise, I'm excited. It's going to be really cool to talk to you again and see, you know, where these two projects go. So yeah. So good luck with everything. Thank you so much and take care. I hope you're safe. Bye, Kalisa. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at anandroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.